turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, hold your finger in that passage of Scripture at the moment. Hold your finger in that passage of Scripture at the moment. And I want you to think about a question. What do you think of when you think of rewards? Do you think of trophies? Do you think of ribbons? Do you think of wages? The reward for my work. Do you think of payday? Do you think of compensation? Do you think of remuneration? Do you think of recompense? That God will recompense me for all of the problems and all of the difficulties that I must face in this life. What do you think of when you think of rewards? And or do you think of a gift of gratitude for a job well done? Now, I have lived long enough to know that there are some people who don't believe that God is a rewarder of persons. I have actually talked to people who, when they think of rewards, they think that it must be a selfish thing on my part to want to be rewarded for the work that I do. I I have heard that from time to time. Let me just refer to one passage of Scripture. I could refer to 15 or more in the life of Jesus Himself. But let me just refer to this one passage of Scripture in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes ends with these words in verse 12 in chapter 5 of Matthew. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven... For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now Jesus had just got done telling that blessed are you when you have been reviled for your faith. When you have been persecuted for your faith. When people say all kinds of evil things against you falsely because of me. After all, you're getting into trouble because you're honoring me. You're sharing the good news of the gospel. And Jesus then says... Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Everybody together, great is your reward in heaven. I don't know. I hope that puts to silence anybody who says there's no such thing as rewards. That's just a carnal thought, and we shouldn't expect them or look forward to them. But I have a second question that I want to ask you before we look at this passage of Scripture in greater detail. What do you think heaven and earth will be like? And I do that because when we think of the future, we've got to remember this temporary separation between the body and the soul where we have all of our loved ones and relatives in heaven at the moment who have passed on. God's going to, Jesus is going to bring them with him to this earth where we will live on this earth forever in a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. So I like to include both of those. What do you think heaven and earth will be like for the person who will receive no rewards? Silence. No rewards? 
Is that possible? I mean, does that mean the mansion's going to be smaller? Does that mean that the person's not going to get any special recognition? Does that mean that that person will have fewer privileges? Does that mean the person will feel that he doesn't deserve to be there in the first place? Are those kind of thoughts relative? Are they true? Are they close to... You all remember the illustration of the lady who was uh, rather wealthy and she had a big home on top of the hill. And you'll remember one night she had a dream. And she dreamed that she went to heaven. And when she went to heaven, she dreamed that she was talking to uh, one of the saints up there who was directing her to her new home in heaven. And she dreamed that this new... And, 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 the, the, and she was directed to a very small place. And she looked at this saint and she said, but I don't understand. I do not understand why I have to live in a small house here. And she looked up on the hill and saw this beautiful big mansion in her dream. And she says, that's the place I should be living in. And the saint said to her, so I'm sorry, lady. We could only build your house on the stuff that you sent up. See, you're all familiar with that, right? Now you think about this for a minute. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. Tomorrow's daily Bible reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I obviously have read it ahead of time in order to preach it today. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I want you to be aware of the fact that if I were to broaden the text of this passage of Scripture to its context... We have the Apostle Paul talking about self-denial. And he begins talking about self-denial when it comes to the area of eating. Now, it's not how much you eat. It has nothing to do with your diet as far as that is concerned. It's what you eat, when and where you eat it. And the four illustrations that the Apostle Paul gives to us is said, okay, What should my self-denial mean to me when I'm home eating with my friends in my own house and we had just gotten, we down at the butcher shop and we had just gotten some, some, some meat from the butcher shop and we know that that meat had been sacrificed before pagan idols, before they took it over to the supermarket or the, the shop to sell it. What should I do? If I'm home and I'm having dinner in my house. The second illustration he uses, and it all deals with the same thing for the most part. The second illustration he uses in 1 Corinthians, you say, I never read that in 1 Corinthians. It's there. It's there. Do your data Bible reading. You'll find it. The second illustration he uses is when I'm dining out and I go to a restaurant or I go to another, another house. And I walk in, and we're about to eat, and we find out the same thing that all of the shops... You've got to remember, Corinth was one of those cities that was so worldly in everything. The gospel hadn't permeated the city of Corinth yet at all. You couldn't buy, you couldn't buy 
uh, meat that probably hadn't been sacrificed to pagan idols. I remember the first time I went to Florida. I remember, I'm in college, it's in 1971. I'm down in Florida, and I walk into a grocery store, and I notice that the, the first row in the grocery store has all kinds of alcoholic beverages from one end to the other. And I said to the guy I was in there with, I said, boy, I don't know. I don't know if I can shop in here because it's got so many, so many alcoholic beverages here, and I don't know if I want to give the impression that I'm supporting that kind of stuff. He said, well, you're going to starve in Florida then. And I said, what do you mean I'm going to starve in Florida? He says, they sell it in every supermarket in Florida. And, you know, one of the big questions that we have about 1 Corinthians is, how, you know, what kind of distance does God expect me to maintain with the world? Does He expect me to be so distanced that I have rubbed shoulders with no one or nothing that's worldly in any, in any way, shape, or form? Or does he expect me to be more realistic in my approach? And, and by the way, the answer, the answer to that question is going to be in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. If you've already looked at your daily Bible reading for last week, you've ran across a passage of Scripture that tells you how much contact you can have with the unbelieving world. But anyway, I digress. The third illustration that he gives to us in this passage of Scripture, the third illustration he gives to us is when I go to uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, there should be no question about that at all, should there? I'm going to an assembly of believers, and we're going to have a dinner, and we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And the fourth illustration that he gives to us is, what if I've been invited out to a birthday party, or I've been invited to a temple, and the temple is going to have a ceremony where they're going to actually sacrifice to an idol, and then we're going to have dinner. How about that? Is that okay? All right? See the variety that he gives to us? You're going to find all of those in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And Paul then gives himself, he says, some of those are okay, some of them are not. It's okay to eat at home with meat that was sacrificed to an idol. It's okay if you've been invited out to someone else's house or you're dining out at a restaurant, it's okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. But it's not okay to go into a temple. Join in them with their service of sacrifice, and then eat with them. It's not okay to do that, you see. But Paul has a big problem, you see, because we're all growing at different rates as believers. And he says, there are some believers who just can't see their way through this. It was like I was back in Florida in 71. You see what I mean? I would have been considered by the Apostle Paul probably a weak believer under the circumstances. But we're all growing at different rates, you see. And the Apostle Paul says, I have to be sensitive to the people around me. If I invite my neighbors over for dinner and they know what's going to be put on the table and they have, oh, they say, oh, I just can't, I, we can't do this, we can't do this because... Uh, it's, it's, it, it, we just can't do this. 
Paul says, well, then I've, I've got to come up with something else for dinner. Self-denial. And so he gives us a pattern of self-denial in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, let me say this to you. He says, you know, Paul was criticized a lot for the things that he did. And that should send a message to us that, you know, criticism is going to happen. I mean, he is so, so severely criticized that he spends the second book of 2 Corinthians talking about these things and the personal criticisms he has received. But let's begin in verse, nine, verse 3 of chapter 9 for just a second, okay? In chapter 9, verse 3, he says, My defense to those who examine me on what I do. My, my defense is simply this. He says, number one, do I not have a right to eat and drink? And your answer should be, yes, Paul, you have a right to eat and drink. The implication is, as a pastor or as an evangelist or as someone who's sharing the gospel, if I come into your town and I share the gospel with you, do I have a right to come into your house and to share your food with you? And the answer would be yes to the Apostle Paul. You have a right to do that. Do I have a right in verse 5 to bring my wife along with me if I want to do that? After all, Peter does that. The other apostles do that. And the brothers of the Lord Jesus himself do that. Do I have a right to bring my wife along or does she have to stay home? And, and the answer to that would be yes, Paul, you have a right to bring your wife along with you. And then in verse 6 he says this, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Do I have a right to refrain from a second job? Do I have a right to refrain from going out and supporting myself bivocationally? Um, and, uh, and the answer again would be to that, No, Paul, you have a right to expect those that you're ministering to, to support you financially. Okay, now, I want you to look at his reasoning behind all of this before we go any further. You have to remember that Paul didn't grow up as a Greek. He grew up as a Jewish person. And if you were a Jewish boy, it didn't make any difference what you did if you became a rabbi or you became a person who served the Lord in the sanctuary uh, in the synagogue or whatever it was, it was still expected of you to have a trade. So every single Jewish boy had a trade. However, if you were a Greek person, the Greeks were so high and mighty in one respect that there were certain jobs that were well beneath them. And if you did these jobs, it was a pitiful thing for you to have to do that. I'm only bringing that to your attention so you understand the difference in cultures here. You see, because the Apostle Paul, in answering the question, says this. He says, in verse 7, he says in verse 7, does a soldier go to war and pay his own expenses? And the answer is what? A resounding what? No, of course not. Does a farmer plant a vineyard and doesn't get a chance to eat of the harvest? What's the answer to that? No, of course not. He's allowed to eat of the harvest. Or does a shepherd tend the flock and not have an opportunity to drink the milk from the flock? And the answer again is, no, of course he has a right to do that. Three reasons the Apostle Paul gave us there. But he doesn't stop there. 
In verse, in verse 8, at the end of the verse, he says, well, what does the law of Moses say about it? And in verse 9, he gives to us exactly what the law of Moses says. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He should be allowed to eat and drink while he is working. That should be the reward for what he does. And then, of course, Paul said, do you think he's just talking about animals? And the answer, of course, no. No, the farmer who plows, he should get the harvest. He should have the hope to get the harvest. And the one who threshes the grain, processes the grain, he should be a partaker as well. But he doesn't end there. Jump down to verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? I mean, where do you think the priests get their food? They get their food from the stuff that is brought to the temple that is used in the services of the temple. And when it's all done, they get to eat it. What about those who serve at the altar and do the sacrifices? Where do you think they get their food? They get it from the stuff. So Paul says this. Paul spends all this time defending his right to receive financial support from those he ministers to. In verse 11, he says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And then Paul drops the bomb. Paul says, but we've never taken advantage of that right. Now, when he says he's never taken advantage of the right, doesn't mean that he hasn't accepted support from churches. He has. It's just that instead of accepting support from the Corinthian church, he received it from the church at Philippi, for example. So it's not that he never accepted support, but he never took advantage of that opportunity. Now, I share that with you because I don't know, if you read this passage of Scripture, and now we're going to go into the application, if you read this passage of Scripture, Paul is definitely talking about receiving the wages, the pay, the compensation, the remuneration, or being recompensed or recompensed for the things that he has either dealt with, worked for, or had to deal with in his ministry. All right? So I want to start right off the bat, and I want to say, oh, by the way, by the way, Look at verse 14. Everybody together. Let's read this together. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. By the way, where does he say that? Do you know? Well, there's your homework assignment. I won't give it to you. <laughs> where does he say it? Obviously, he says it back in the gospels, right? All right, but having said that, the Apostle Paul says, No, I have not accepted wages or pay from you guys. On face value, you might say, well, this might be one of those guys who would suggest that, oh, it's, it's kind of like beneath me to, to even assume that I should be looking forward to compensation or pay for the things that I do. But let me simply answer this question for you as we finish this off. How do you know if you 
will be rewarded for the things that you do. What are some of the characteristics that Paul has given to us here? Well, number one, before I even begin, I must remind you that rewards and compensation for the things that we do for the Lord, whether it's our simple obedience as children, husbands and wives, as far as loving our spouses, whether it be actually serving in the church, going to the mission field, whether it's just that, that obedience or those efforts that we take that are above and beyond, it's all included. But I have to remind you that nothing is directly linked to our salvation. It is indirectly linked to our salvation. Remember when the two thieves were hanging on the cross in Luke chapter 23? He understood, the thieves understood how the world works. They understood that if you go to work, you get paid. If you do something, you get the consequences of that action. That's the way the world works. And you'll remember that you had one criminal who was hanging and blaspheming Jesus and saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself. And the other said, no, 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 you shouldn't be rebuking him like that. Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He understood how it works. But did Jesus save him that day? Yes. Right then and there on the spot when he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Did it have anything to do with his works or his deeds? Nothing. Not a thing. So I remind you of that. Never walk out of a church service where we're talking about rewards and the things that God is going to do to pay you, to compensate you, to uh, remunerate you, uh, to give you, if you feel, a bonus or a gift of appreciation. Never walk out of her thinking that it is somehow directly linked to your salvation because it is not. You and I are saved purely by grace. It doesn't matter how good you have been. It doesn't matter how bad you have been. Just think of our media message when you're just not sure of that fact. But let me give you these characteristics very, very quick. Got to do it in five minutes. Okay, first one, first one, verse 17. Verse 17, Paul is explaining himself and he's saying, listen, he says, I want you to understand that I preach the gospel in verse 16. I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me to preach the gospel. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly or voluntarily, I have a reward. Now, he's not saying I don't want a reward, but he's saying, listen, what you do for Christ that you do willingly and voluntarily is a reward. Volunteer. You can expect to be rewarded by the Lord when you volunteer. Imagine how a pastor feels. Here we are, we get paid a salary for what we do. Do you think we're satisfied with that? I don't mean in wanting more. Do you think we're satisfied in that and that alone? No, 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 no. We want the Lord to know that we are willing to go above and beyond what we do. We are willing to do a lot of things that we do voluntarily. And we are supposed to be examples to the congregation in that. 
aspect. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to my wife and we've, we've looked at special needs and we've looked at our finances and we've looked at all of this and we said, I don't know, you know, Don, what do you think? Should we do this? Should we? Never once in, the, in all of the years that we've been married has she ever hedged anything and said, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we can afford this. 100% of the time, she has always enthusiastically says, let's do it. Let's do it. And some of them have been pretty, pretty shaky. You would probably look at me and say, boy, Gary, you're crazy you know, from a human perspective. But listen, if I do it voluntarily, I should expect a reward. But number two, let me simply say this. In verse 18, he begins in verse 15. He says, I preach the gospel. 16, I preach the gospel, and I have to do it out of necessity. Here's the interesting thing about rewards. We can expect them when we serve the Lord faithfully with our energy, with our time, with our money, with our Christian graces, whatever it is, we can expect the Lord to reward us for that. But you must remember that you and I want to get to the place where every time we do something, we want to, okay, now what's my reward going to be? What's my reward going to be? What's my re-? So that's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 16, he says, yes, I preach the gospel because I am compelled to preach the gospel. I work willingly, I work voluntarily, but I am working passionately because I am compelled. The idea of not sharing the gospel just doesn't enter into my mind. And so any compensation fades into the background when I think of the highest purpose. He says, you know what? I think of the reward that I'm going to receive when I see happy faces out there of people who are free from their condemnation of sin. And just the idea of worshiping with them is going to be really neat. You see? So... Are you passionate? Do you feel compelled? Does any sense of compensation fade before higher purposes? In verse 19, here's another one in verse 19. Verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all. Are you a servant to all? And then he lists all these group of people. He says, To the Jews, I become a Jew. To the Greeks, I become a Greek. To the weak, I become a Greek. What does he mean by all of that? In verses 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23, what does he mean, for instance, when he says in verse 22, to the weak I become as weak that I might win the weak. I enter into the world of those who are weak. I accept the inconveniences that they live under. I accept the circumstances they live under. It's like a missionary who goes to the foreign field and leaves a nice home here and he doesn't get to live in a home that's like the one he lived here in the United States. He doesn't get to have the stuff he had when he lived here in the United States. He has to live under the inconveniences. He can't go to the mall when he wants to go to the mall. He can't do those things, you see, because he has become a servant to all. Remember Moses, when Moses left Egypt, he says, you know what? He says, oh, fantastic. you'd have loved living in Egypt probably for all the prosperity when Moses lived there. I mean, it was a fantastic place. Uh, modern, probably in every respect, at all the, the luxuries, luxurious conveniences of the world at that time. And Moses said, you know what? I would rather, rather, rather live with the people of God than to live in Egypt, you see. And he talks about it in a sense of rewards in Hebrews chapter 11. 
It's like the lady who wanted a special, special missionary project. I'm not suggesting you go out and do this. But this illustrates what we're talking about, the kind of thing you're talking about. It's like the lady who goes out and, and uh, she, she hears this special project that is going on for missionaries. And she goes home and she turns her hot water tank off to save some money. She cancels her paper subscription for a while to save some money. She heats the water on the stove and takes it into the bathroom to get washed up and take a bath because she wants to serve the Lord in that way. Identifying with the needs of the people that they are serving with the gifts. Now, let me, let me close this with this, okay? You know that in 1 Corinthians, you'll know that the Corinthian church in the city of Corinth had what they call the Isthmian Games. We kind of have the setup that we have today. We have the Summer Olympics, and that's done every four years. And then every two years, we have the Winter Olympics. Well, that's pretty much the way it was back in the time of the New Testament. You had the, the Olympics, the Greek Olympics, and then every two, year, two years after that, you would have the Isthmian Games, which were done right in the city of Corinth every year. So don't be surprised the Apostle Paul, when he talks about rewards, ends up with this illustration of those who run a race. He says, do you not know, verse 24, that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Now don't, don't just assume that only one, of, one person is going to receive a prize as far as the reward is concerned. But this is meant to teach us a very simple thing. And that is this. The Apostle Paul says that I'm supposed to run in such a way that I may obtain the prize. That I may be rewarded. That I may be compensated. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. He is disciplined. In those days, if you wanted to be in the Olympics or you wanted to be in the Isthmian Games, you had to follow the guidelines. You had to have a rigid diet for several months. You had to have an exercise program. And if you didn't do any of those things or didn't do them the way you were supposed to, you were disqualified. So Paul says several things here. He says, I'm to be temperate. I'm to be certain. I'm to be certain that there is a crown for me. A crown is another word to describe rewards in verse 25. He says, it's interesting you run a race. In this world, you expect to get a temporary crown or a trophy or a ribbon or something like that. But we want something that's imperishable, that's going to last forever, in verse 25. So he says, I run not uncertainly. I run with certainty. I fight not as one who shadow boxes in the air. I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. And he says, those, all of those things together, I can, I can put into these two words that if you and I uh, want to receive your rewards, we have to be willing to sacrifice and we have to be willing to self-deny. By the way, by the way, it puts a different spin on this passage. This, this passage of Scripture bothered me more than any passage in the Bible when I was a kid. Even more than the ones where, well, I won't even bring them to your attention. This one bothered me the most. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
I thought, you mean to be a, a Christian that loved the Lord? I, I've got to deny myself. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 27 says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will what? He will what? Reward each according to his works. Puts a little different spin on that, doesn't it? But nevertheless, all of those things indicate that I am willing to sacrifice and I am willing to self-deny myself of certain things. So Paul says, run to obtain um, so that you don't become disqualified. Paul says, I can be disqualified. Now, I don't want to go any further because time is over. But let me ask you this question. Do you think there are passages of Scripture in the Bible that tell you and me that we can be talked out of our rewards? Trust me on this. There are. Do you think there are passages of Scripture in the Bible that tell me that I can lose my reward? Trust me on this. There are. There are. Don't be disqualified. I have one other final thing to say to you, and I just want to do this based on, I wanted to go back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and then bring on all of these passages of Scripture that talk about rewards. But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop right there. And I'm just going to ask you to just think about this. Think about this. Is it okay to anticipate rewards? A job well done? God's gifts? God's compensation? Yes, absolutely. It is. It is. And I would think, based on what the Scriptures teach about rewards, you and I would be a little bit um, insane, I was going to put it that way, just a little bit, if we would not attempt, make an effort, run to obtain. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, I know this is just an introduction to rewards and all of that, but Father, I pray that it really inspires us you're a loving Heavenly Father who compensates for everything. You're fair, you're just, you're right in all you do. And I pray, Lord, that this would encourage us to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.